0: And I think this is what's really interesting about careers is, you know, we talk about jungle gym careers, and we talk about squiggly careers, squiggly line careers. There's lots of different phraseology for it. And I think it's just, my career is definitely not a ladder in any way, shape or form. But a lot of people that are in that beginning management stage are dealing with confidence issues. They're dealing with imposter syndrome. They're dealing with, why am I the person that's now in charge. Why do people think I can do this? I'm not sure I can. And it's about creating a space for them to explore that, find out why they're feeling that way, and then help them to move forward with better patterns to allow themselves to have confidence in themselves. And each one of those steps I learned something from and it helped me to shape who I am today. So I would say, trust the process. It's gonna be crazy. Uh, Hang on and enjoy the ride. So then I decided to do the really practical, logical thing and go to Nashville to become a country singer.
1: Hello, I'm Ian Rodwell, host of the Linklater's Ideas Foundry, where we talk about and try to unpick the art of working together in the 21st century organization. Now I first met today's guest in 2007, just as she'd started as a trainee lawyer at Linklater's. Now, this was in the early days of social media, and somehow I persuaded Kimberly and some of her peers to stand up and speak to the most senior partners in the firm about this new phenomenon and how it might change the world. It was a challenging ask, especially given it was Kimberly's first week in the firm. But I think it's fair to say that she owned the stage, although no, perhaps not surprising given her early dalliance with musical theatre and Nashville. And it's been really fascinating to watch her career flourish, from Linklater's lawyer, to working in-house, to coach, consultant, and now podcast host with an impressive roster of guests. So, Kimberly, welcome to the Ideas Foundry.
0: Thank you, Ian. I had almost forgotten about that first foyer on the stage, but uh, that was definitely an experience.
1: Oh, you're not getting some kind of flashback now?
0: <laughs> no, it was actually interesting because we, we talked about the different types of media that there were and how partners could start to use them and how social media was going to be coming into the corporate world. And we've seen that, obviously, leaps and bounds and how we incorporate what we do into the social media
1: world as well. Now, I was trying to think about what, what you were talking about, and I think it was Facebook.
0: I was actually on MySpace. We talked about, I did MySpace because no one else knew about it. And we talked about Facebook, we talked about MySpace, and we talked about this new thing called LinkedIn that we thought was coming up. Mm. Mm.
1: Yeah, I think Wikipedia made its way in there as well. So MySpace, Yeah. (laughs) So, well, as we're back in the past now, uh, so tell me about your life before you decided to become a lawyer and and why you nearly followed a career in theatre and how Nashville figured amongst it all.
0: So I grew up the daughter of a US Naval officer and of a professional dancer. So my mom's a professional dancer, dad, US Naval officer. And that dynamic plays a lot in how I ended up where I am. But we moved every two years, and I had some incredible experiences living in Paris, I went to high school in Ecuador, and through all of that, one of the things I found is to get connected with people, you needed to be involved in activities. So if you're changing schools every two years, you've got to make friends. And one of the ways I did that was through sport, and the other way I did that was through theatre and through music. And so. When I was in high school, uh, the school I went to had a massive focus on on theater and on music. And I I went to my first audition there, and I was quite nervous because I'd done some plays up until then, but this was kind of the big leagues, and it was high school. And I auditioned for the spring musical, which was Oliver, and I really wanted to play Nancy. Uh, And I went, I did my audition, and I saw the cast list go up and I went through the entire cast list and I had not even got cast as the rose seller who I had been in a previous, uh, in a previous life in Oliver. And I walked away just completely deflated. And as I was walking away, everyone kept saying, congratulations, congratulations. And I, I thought something else might've happened. I was in the middle of student elections as well, so I thought maybe it was something to do with that. And then I went back to the cast list when there were fewer people around, walked through it again, still did not see my name there, still had lots of people saying, congratulations, congratulations. Walked back to the cast list the third time and started from the very top. Oliver Twist, Kimberly Hunt, which was my maiden name. <laughs> I was cast as the oh, lead role, a male lead role, and I was I was just incredibly honored to have been to have been given that role. And I, and that went on from there, where I, I ended up being a lead role in all the plays in high school, and then that continued into college. When I went to university, um, I wanted to do theater, speech and dance. That was what I wanted to major in. And my father, my mother was obviously very supportive as the professional dancer. And my father, as a U.S. naval officer, suggested I get something that was a little bit, I don't know, more real world, I think were his words. And so I decided to do international studies. And I took that sort of international flavor. I spoke French and Spanish fluently from living overseas. And I brought that to the table. And I did that as my major course study. But on the side, any elective I could take was either Theatre, Speech and Dance. And I ended up with enough credits to actually have minored in it. But I was also minoring in French and Spanish, so I couldn't minor in three. That was (laughs) one of the rules of the university. Uh, But in that process, I also was asked to audition for community theatre. And this was based in Columbia, South Carolina, which is the capital of South Carolina. The population of South Carolina is about the same population as Ireland, so we're talking about that kind of size. And we're in the capital, again, I go to this audition. It's a big audition. Uh, people that are there are actually professional actors. It's the type of stage you want to be on because you can get picked up. People come and watch you. And audition auditioned for this show and, again, was cast, not as the lead this time, but as one of the chorus members, which was extremely exciting. My idea was I was going to graduate and I was going to go up to Broadway and I was going to audition for plays on Broadway, and I wanted to be Ebonine in Les Mis. That was the ultimate dream. I got cast in the show and it was a roaring success. We were on the cover of the state newspaper. We had people coming to watch and doing reviews. I mean, outstanding reviews. I actually have the big printouts of the reviews still somewhere in my in my files. It was It was just incredible run. It went on and on and on. And by the end of it, I could not imagine anything worse than getting on stage and doing that play again. And the way I describe it to people is I say, imagine if whatever you did today, every conversation you had, every reaction you had, you had to do it again tomorrow. And then you had to do it again the next day. And then you had to do it again the next day. And you had to keep the energy up to entertain an audience. It is great for some. Some love it. They get the energy. They, they transform themselves on stage. I've talked to actors about how they keep it fresh. It just, I realized it was not for me. And what a blessing to have had that happen then, as opposed to getting up to Broadway, working as a waitress, slogging my way through it, probably never making it, doing some you know chorus girl bit off-Broadway, off-Broadway, and then realizing then, actually, it's been 20 years and I still haven't even gotten cast and I don't even like what I'm doing. So it was an absolute blessing. So then I decided to do the really practical, logical thing and go to Nashville to become a country singer.
1: Okay, so uh, had you been singing before, or just decided, "Well, oh, let's go to Nashville, so, Grand Ole Opry." Must <laughs> <be a laughs> let's bit just get up there, let's go on, get on, on stage. stage.
0: So I loved country music, and I sang a lot in bars around uh, around Columbia, which is where I was in school. And I had a guy that was really great on guitar. He actually plays in Nashville now. Um, I had another guy who's now a sound engineer in Nashville. It's really interesting, the people I was playing with and surrounded with actually all did go to Nashville and made it and have done some really great things with their careers. Um, I decided to spring this on my parents on a drive down to the coast of South Carolina where we were boarding our house up because a hurricane was coming. So low stress, we're in a low stress situation. Uh, We get to see the house, and we're boarding it up, and I decide to spring it on my dad. Um, By the way, I'm graduating early from university because I had enough credits to graduate early. And I'm going to go to Nashville during the time that I would have taken to finish university and within that time period see if I get any further in my singing career that I am the day I arrive. And if I am, I'll stay. And if I'm not, I'll go and I'll do something else. I thought it was very logical. So my, daughter, my dad's response was, "You are completely cut off. You get no financial help from us. This is a folly. I do not know what you're doing with your life. This is ridiculous. Go get a real job." My mom just said, "Come home anytime you want, sweetheart. The door is always open."
1: To be fair, it'd be quite a good subject for a country song. Right? Yeah.
0: There we go. The it's the making based of on a
1: kind of misery and uh, despondency. So.
0: <laughs> my dad told me, <laughs> <laughs> "Totally, sort of, we're ready. We're ready to go there." So I get back to where I was living with um, a few of my girlfriends and sit them all down to to tell them the announcement. And I say, I'm going to Nashville, this is, you know, I'm I'm on my way. One of the girls goes to the kitchen to get a bottle of bubbly uh, to come back and for us to toast it. I wouldn't say champagne because we were in university, so it was definitely not champagne, sparkling something. And there's on the message machine, so back in the day, for all those listening, we had message machines that would blink a little red light when they would have a message. And there was a woman and she had left a message saying, I'm trying to find Kimberly Hunt. We've been looking for you for several weeks now. We think that your number has changed. We're hoping this is your number. You applied for a State Department internship at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations several months ago, and we wanted to offer you the position. But you have to tell us by tomorrow or it's going to someone else. Now, backing the story up, I'd applied for this because everybody in international relations applies for this internship. It's like a White House internship. Everyone applies for it. No one gets it, ever. You do not get this internship. So she comes back in. She's like, before we toast, I think you need to listen to the message. So I listen to the message, sit down with the girls, have a little conversation and say, I'm not sure I can pass this up. So I call my dad and I say, I've got some more news. I've just been offered this internship in New York. However, it's completely unpaid, so I'm not sure how I'm gonna live in New York, he said. (laughs) I will pay for everything. I will get you whatever you need. We will work it out, just go." And so that was the end of the Nashville dream. Uh, Very interestingly, my mom, years later, found an amazing karaoke bar in Nashville. And when we were passing through as a family, I got to sing there. And so I sang in this karaoke bar and it's notorious for having people that are trying to be up and coming stars that sing there. And I ended up getting a standing ovation. So I got my standing ovation in Nashville in the end.
1: You you reached, you reached Nashville.
0: Yes, <laughs> on so, some level.
1: <laughs> so look, so you've avoided Broadway. Yeah. You've swerved Nashville. Yeah. You've ended up at the UN. So what was then the path to becoming a lawyer?
0: Great question. So not very obvious, is it? And I think this is what's really interesting about careers is, you know, we talk about jungle gym careers and we talk about squiggly careers, squiggly line careers. There's lots of different phraseology for it. And I think it's just my career is definitely not a ladder in any way, shape or form. Uh, So I go up to New York, Um, I'd lived there for six months, very hard place to live. Again, a realization I was very excited to have found out when I wasn't trying to also make it on Broadway. I enjoyed my time at the US UN, but found the UN to very much be a talking shop. And I am someone who wants to affect change. I'm someone who wants to make a difference. And so I thought, actually, I don't think this is going to be the career for me, thinking about going into the State Department and working you know, with the UN and working in, in that realm. So I moved down to DC to go into politics and I was uh, working with an organization that brings Republicans and Democrats to the table in order to get things through Congress and the Senate. I got to meet some amazing congressmen and senators, um, including the likes of John McCain, who to this day, probably one of the most outstanding people I've met. Um, Just a really genuinely wonderful person. And we got a few things done through that, but then the 2000 elections came around um, and actually I realized politics are run by money. And it's who has the most money. And that's the thing I was most impressed with John McCain is he spoke to you as a person, not as someone who was going to be able to fund him. Whereas other people would very quickly see me as a 20-something-year-old female who probably doesn't have a lot of money. Let's talk to the next person. And so that was something that I, I found is that the money was what's running DC. And it's still the case. And the money came from the lobbyists. And if you talk to anybody who's a lobbyist, they all have a law degree. So I decided to go into law. Now, in the middle of all this, before I've applied to law school, a friend of mine calls me up to say, Arnold and Porter are hiring and they need legal assistance to work in the international trade area and they want people with language skills. Will you apply? So because the election had just happened, it was a good time to jump off. So I jumped off in November, went to go work for Arnold and Porter, and I started this whole world of legal, like working in a law firm, Arnold and is not dissimilar to Linklater's, you know, big law firm, big clients. Um, the international element of it I loved. It brought in the, you know, international relations and politics because you had to know what was going on in the world for your clients and how that was going to affect them. And that is when I really got the bug for international trade. And so when I went to law school, instead of going towards politics, I actually went and focused on international trade. And so I was doing international trade and EU comparative law. And through that program at my law school, um, I ended up actually studying in Poland, which is how I met my husband, which
1: comes into the story a bit later. So tell me, how how did the, the legal career unfold from there? So I was working at Arnold
0: and Porter, went to law school, ended up going and doing a presidential management fellowship at the Department of Commerce and then as i'd said i was dating somebody who was i'd met on a study abroad in poland and he was an irishman and came over to the us and was studying uh, got his uh, llm and llb and llm do not equate to a jd so it was very hard for him to get a job and so he went up to new york to a job fair and was offered a role at another magic circle firm and so he came home and said do you want to get married and do you want to move to london And I said, yes, I want to get married. No, I don't want to move to London. But we started to look at options that were available. And Linklater's had a fantastic opportunity for me to come and do a training contract. And the foundations that I got just training at Linklater's were incredible. So I stepped out of there working in infrastructure and energy. And I focused on oil and gas, and I did some renewable energy, and I really loved it and was invigorated by it. And I went on secondment to a major bank. And while I was there, I did some of the financing side, and actually that really caught my interest, and I quite liked the dynamic of being in-house, but I also really loved the finance side. So when an opportunity came up there, I took it, and I jumped ship and went and worked in-house. And my career there was also very interesting because I realized as I was there that actually doing the Black Letter Law, doing the contract negotiations, reading contracts, did not bring me a lot of joy, and actually I found it quite tedious. I enjoy the interaction with clients. I loved a closing dinner, but actually sitting down and reviewing the contracts was not something that brought me a lot of joy. And so I started to investigate what was it that I was enjoying. And one of the things I did there was I was the chief of staff to the general counsel for commercial banking. and. Through that, I was then sent on leadership courses. I was able to develop the inclusion and diversity offering for the entire legal and secretariat department. And I started to do things that brought me a lot of joy, but again, they were not black letter law. And that was the start of my journey to move away from law.
1: So this is, this is really intriguing, Kimberly. And I've asked a similar question to people in the past. But as a lawyer, how did you find that coaching mindset? Or to put it another way, to what extent do you think lawyers make good coaches?
0: It's such an interesting question and I think the fundamentals of being a lawyer are about finding and giving the answer to someone. So they come to you with really tricky, difficult questions, especially at a place like Linklater's. And you have to find the nuance. You have to find the legality around it, and you have to deliver an answer to them. You have to turn all of that off when you become a coach. That is the hardest thing in the world to do. You still need to service your client. You still need to build rapport with them. There's lots that comes from being a lawyer that's really helpful. But actually, the idea of coaching is that The person in front of you finds the answers for themselves. You are not to be directive. You don't tell them what to do, where to go. You ask probing questions to draw that out of them and help them create new neural pathways to find new ways and challenge existing behavior and existing thought patterns. So it's actually really difficult to be a lawyer and step into that space. And I often use the phraseology, so I help to train people becoming coaches now as well. And I say, don't lead the witness. So even in questioning, you can lead a witness. So you can ask questions to get them to go where you want them to go. So I think that's actually the hardest part, but there's loads of transferable skills. One of my episodes in my podcast, and we're gonna talk about my podcast in a minute, is called um, The Skills That Pay the Bills about transferable skills and building that rapport with clients, really important for lawyers, really important
1: for coaches. So that was one big leap that you made. And was there one thing, an event that triggered that particular decision?
0: I'd gone to see uh, one of my best friends and in her house, she had these jars of beans up on a shelf. And so I inquired as to what the jars of beans were. They had the names of each of her children on them. Some were half full, some were more full. And her son is three months younger than my eldest and his jar was half full. And she said, well, when the kids were born, we put one bean in for every single weekend we have with the children between now and when they're 18. And after every weekend, we take one bean out. And it's a visual representation to us of how long we have with our kids. And their youngest, being two years old, had quite a full jar. And then seeing this half full jar of a child that was the same age as my son, I completely freaked out. And I said, I do not have, he's nine years old now, We have nine more years until he leaves the house. I'm working so hard that I'm barely home on the weekends because I'm so tired and I don't see them in the evenings. And for me, that was the catalyst to start my own business. And the two things I said to myself were, I want to have every August and December 5th from December 15th to the end of year off. So I want to spend every single summer with my kids and not have to ask anyone permission because when you work in an organization, you have to service your client. So you have to balance that out. Someone's got to cover the office, not you cannot have every single Christmas off. You cannot have every single August off. Maybe some people have found the perfect, you know, the perfect panacea to have that happen, but it wasn't working for me in in the organization I was in. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was, is I wanted to ensure that I was able to drop my kids off at school. And so I could do that by starting my own business. I could do that by having my own schedule where I could say, actually, I'm I'm not taking any clients for the month of August, I'm going to do my budget. This was another big penny dropping moment is if you're taking all of August off and taking half of December off, you have a month and a half of no income that you need to account for when you're doing your, your accounts and looking forward to your business plan. So that was for me, just seeing those beans and seeing that visual representation of how little time I had with the kids left really just boom, that made me say, I need to hand in my notice, I need to get this done.
1: And what surprised you most when you made that when you made that change?
0: The fact that I did not get a paycheck every month that came in. That's what surprised me the most. I know it sounds silly, but you actually, I don't think you realize until you start your own business and you're out from that umbrella of a corporate that every month on the 20th that money's coming in. That that is a it's a shock, and even if you are making money and it comes in differently, you still have to bill. And if you don't bill, it doesn't come in. So it's it's interesting looking back at being an associate at Linklaters when partners are constantly telling you you have to bill. We can't pay you unless you bill. When you own your own company, you become the partner, but in your own company, you realize oh yes, this is very important. We don't get paid if we don't bill. So it's a really interesting dynamic of not having that set income, um, and it's it's a scary place to be.
1: And in terms of your coaching practice, the things that you were focusing on, was it general coaching or were there particular themes that you wanted to major on?
0: So I did executive coaching. That was my study. That's what I got my master's and my LLM in. So very much focused on management, on leadership, on people trying to become better leaders, essentially. What's been really interesting is I have loved working with middle management. I've loved working with people that are first-time managers because you can help to mold and shape them so that they're starting from a great place to grow from. When you work with the C-suite, which I've also done with some huge international banks, you're dealing with people who say, I'm an old dog, you're not going to be able to teach me new tricks. What I love about that is when they come back and they say, okay, I'm learning some new tricks. Thank you. But a lot of people that are in that beginning management stage are dealing with confidence issues, they're dealing with imposter syndrome, they're dealing with why am I the person that's now in charge? Why do people think I can do this? I'm not sure I can. And it's about creating a space for them to explore that, find out why they're feeling that way, and then help them to move forward with better patterns to allow themselves to have confidence in themselves.
1: So... We've gone from private practice lawyer, you've gone in-house, there you are now as a coach and consultant uh, and maybe channeling uh, the, the dreams of Nashville and Broadway. You thought, well, let's go into the media world. Let's, let's start a podcast. So, so tell me about that particular decision.
0: So the podcast is called The Undiscovered You, small plug, and uh, it's, it's a podcast for people who feel like they have more to offer but are somehow stuck where they are. The reason I started the podcast is because I wanted to be able to share my network, I wanted to be able to share my experiences, and I wanted to be able to share all the learning and development that I have had throughout my career and my education with people so that I'm not holding on to all this knowledge. This came to me from speaking to somebody at one point where I said, well, I'm not gonna go into this whole, you know, neuropathways and how we're changing neuropathways because everybody knows that. And like, whoa, 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 what are you talking about everybody knows that? Tell us more about what you mean. And what I realized is all of this learning and development that I've had since, I would say primary school. So they pull you out. They say, you're in a talented and gifted program. We're gonna send you here. Or you're going on a presidential management fellowship program. We're gonna send you to this institute. Or you get all these little bits of knowledge information throughout your entire career and you don't even realize that you have that bank of knowledge until you start talking to people. And so I wanted to share that out and I wanted to share out this incredible network again for moving around the world and all these amazing organizations I'd work with as well with the world. And the main thing I wanted to do was help people that felt stuck get unstuck. So the podcast is totally for people who, want to do something more know they have more to offer but they're just not really sure how to get started
1: okay. and the late, the latest season is called the dream catchers um and one thought is how how do you advise someone who is well not advise coach someone who may not be sure what their dream is how do you go about finding that that dream or knowing or knowing when it's there
0: it's so interesting because people ask me that question a lot is what if I don't know what the dream is? What if I don't know where my passions lie? And I would say take some time to think about, as I said, what are you reading? So when I talked about, you know, my friends were all around the table reading the periodicals, the legal periodicals, and I wasn't, what was I reading? So I really like neuroscience and I was reading loads of articles about neuroscience. I love leadership. I was reading lots of leadership books, listening to podcasts. What are you listening to? What is it that brings you passion? And then if you really are unsure still, you're like, I don't even read extra things outside. I barely have time to do that. What gets you buzzing? So when you come out of a meeting, what about that meeting made you happy? What about that meeting depleted you? So we talk about what brings you energy and what depletes you. So what was it that brought you energy? Was it being around people? Or did that completely deplete you? Are you somebody that has an introverted preference? And so actually being around people depletes you? Or are you someone that has an extroverted preference? So being around people really brings you energy. So thinking about what is it that brings you energy? What brings you joy? What makes you tick? And what is that passion about? That's how you're going to find your dream. That's how you're going to find your passion. And sometimes those dreams and those passions are side of the desk and you keep doing what you're doing because you're fine there. You're not unhappy. You're good. You might even be happy, but actually you have this passion. It doesn't have to be your job, but just finding that to give yourself that outlet will actually make you better at your own job.
1: So tell me about some of the, some of the guests that you've had on the podcast and is there someone that you would love to be on the podcast if if you could have a dream podcast who would your ultimate guest be
0: i think brene brown would be my ultimate guest (laughs) to be completely honest uh so the guests i've had on the podcast again a lot of them have been pulled either from my network so either my direct network or people saying you need to interview this person they're amazing and they always are or Couple of people cold called them. So I've read their stories on social media and just gotten in touch and said, you know, I'm doing a season right now called Playing the Hand You're Dealt. I just read your story about how you dealt with your husband's leukemia diagnosis. I would love to have you on the podcast. And so they come, Danny Fontanesi was this person, and she came and was on the podcast and she was brilliant. So the, the guests, and also I'd love people to reach out to me and say, I've got a story I'd love to share. And that's what it's about. It's about story sharing and storytelling because I want people to hear how other people have dealt with either the hand that they've been dealt, so dealt with issues in their life, have used transferable skills, so the skills that pay the bills, how they've used mentors, marvelous mentors, or how they've become a dream catcher. So the reason the dream catchers even came about was my guests would start by saying, I wanted to go to Broadway. I wanted to be a professional dancer. I wanted to be a musician, but I did this. So I thought, why don't I interview people who are professional photographers, professional journalists, professional musicians, and actually hear how do you catch that dream? So that kind of, oh, you probably shouldn't go into that type career.
1: You haven't met anybody who's who's become a dancer or photographer and it turns out their dream was to become a lawyer yeah
0: i wonder i haven't haven't had that guest yet if you're out there though get in touch i'd like to hear that one
1: so your next season is about balance is that right and what does what does balance mean to you and how do you how do you create that balance while also chasing your dreams as well the balance dream
0: So, the season is called balancing on a seesaw, and that's very intentional language because there are times in your life when the seesaw's up, times in life when the seesaw's down, and I think there are very few times where it's in great balance. And for me personally, balance is around my family, um, my faith, um, my job, my exercise, my health, And I put exercise and health a bit differently because I can exercise and eat terribly. So I think for me, it's it's exercising, eating well, and making sure I'm going to the doctor if there are certain things that need to be checked out. Other people's balance can be very different. I do a great exercise with my clients called the circle of life. And we have you list out eight different things that are important to you within your life and plot them on a circle and a wheel. And then think about where you are in each one of those. And it's a really great visual to see where, how am I doing on each of these and what is this telling me? What is this wheel telling me? Interestingly, I said I run this um, coaching with confidence course, and I was, we do this with our participants. And so this time my co-presenter was doing it. So I made my wheel and sat down and did it myself. And it's really, it's a really interesting exercise, coach, not coach, whoever you are, to do, because it allows you to see where's the balance out of kilter on my wheel. And I think the balance is when things start to go awry, what do you need to say no to? So when you're saying yes to something, you're always saying no to something else. So what are you saying no to? It's a great question to ask. If I'm saying yes to this, what am I saying no to?
1: And what, do you, what, what struck me there, Kimberly, is identifying our dreams and identifying what balance means to us are really important exercises that everybody should do but what gets in the way of that? Is it just lack of time or are there other things do you think have an influence?
0: I think that's the beauty of having a coach or going on a coaching retreat. So I run a coaching retreat once or twice a year. And the reason I do it is to give people time and space a way to be able to dedicate that time to thinking about priorities, to thinking about purpose, to think about passion, because we have a lot of noise in the world you have a lot of responsibilities in the world. And so when you have a coach, you have dedicated time with them. You're paying for it. Your company is paying for it. You know, this is an investment that you're making. And then you invest your time because you're paying for it. And so you take that time out an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever your time slot is with your coach, and you focus. And there's no noise. It's the same on a coaching retreat, little noise around you. But in your everyday, how hard is it to carve that time out? And if you do, you second you you think for yourself. Actually, the phone's ringing, the emails are going. I really need to read this article. I'm just I'll do this later, and it gets shoved off to the side because it doesn't. It's not a
1: priority. So Kimberly, I've got two final questions for you. So the first one is, if you could go back in time, what is the one piece of guidance that the Kimberly of today might give the Kimberly poised to go to Nashville and about to storm the country world?
0: I think I would tell her to trust the process. So this is a concept we use a lot when training up coaches is the process feels weird, it feels uncomfortable, you don't know what's coming around the corner, you don't know if it's gonna work or not, but trust the process because it's there and it works. And my career has been one that has gone all over the place and I don't think if I had, if I had not trust the process, I don't know that I would have ended up where I am today. And by that, I mean, I did a lot of stuff that if I said, oh, I wish I hadn't done this, or I wish I hadn't done that, actually, they led me to my husband. They led me to a career in law, which has given me credibility as a coach. They've helped me to think differently. And each one of those steps I learned something from, and it helped me to shape who I am today. So I would say, trust the process. It's gonna be crazy. Uh, Hang on and enjoy the ride. (laughs)
1: And that's what I find so fascinating and actually so energising about your story is that you weren't there at 18 with a grand plan as to this is how I want the rest of my life to map, up, to map out. Well, what's happened is different opportunities have come up. There have been U-turns, there have been complete switches in direction and you've just gone with it. As you said, you, you've, t- you've trusted the process as if there is some kind of guiding hand there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, some might argue there is, but I think there's also the fact that, you know, opportunities present themselves and you always have the chance to either go for it or not. But opportunities are not going to present themselves if you're not out there. So you've got to get out there. You've got to go. If you're feeling so stuck that you don't even know where to start, start going to events around what you love. So if you Dying to be a photographer, start going to photography events, take a photography class, meet photography professors and other people that love photography, build that network, that network will then expand and that's how you get unstuck. So it's you create opportunities by expanding your network. You create opportunities by going and doing things. It's not like opportunities just literally knock on the door and you answer. You've got to find doors that people can knock on.
1: The final question almost inevitably, really, is have you caught your dream?
0: Ah, have I caught my dream? Brene Brown, being the next Brene Brown. No, I don't know. I don't know, actually. I go around with this because I have a fame monster that I know lives within me. And I am so happy I'm not famous now. And every time I get on a tube and I'm not recognized, every time I walk down the street and no one knows who I am, I love it. And so my dream would probably be a big dream of being someone like Brene Brown or someone like Steve Barrett. But at the same time, I don't want to be famous. So I don't know if I think I've caught the dream in terms of I'm doing something I love. I enjoy my work more than anything. I have lots more to do. I have lots of ideas and things I'm going to be doing from there. I'm learning all the time and I love the people I'm working with. And I have time with my kids, which is the whole reason I I left and went and did this in the first place. So I think, yes, I've caught the dream to an extent. There are more dreams out there and I think they'll come, but I need to keep my my fame monster in check.
1: Kimberly, thank you so much for coming in today. And yeah, let's let's catch up in a year or so and see uh, how tamed that fame monster is, but thank you.
0: Thanks so much, Ian. It's been a pleasure.